being with us this morning. Uh, this morning's a little different in terms of what we're doing with our me- message. As I mentioned at the start of the service, uh, usually Matt is preaching right now through the book of 1 Corinthians. He will continue that uh, in a week or two after he has recovered from COVID. He is one of those that I mentioned at the beginning of the service, is one of a late week um, that tested positive. Last week we had a guest speaker, so we had a little break and interruption in that First Corinthians series. And uh, the series that I had completed on Malachi, I'm getting ready to start a new series through Second Peter. Um, but this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a standalone message. Because Roe versus Wade made abortions legal in the United States 49 years ago, this past week. Many churches and others use January to focus on the sanctity of life. We mentioned this last week and have a table in the lobby to highlight ways you can be involved in the fight for life, the fight for life to be valued as a sacred gift from God, the creator and redeemer of life. This morning we want to recognize this modern-day atrocity as part of the cosmic war that has been raging for millennia. We'll do that um, beginning by looking at the attempted murder of a single child. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Now when they, it's talking about the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill... What the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, see he had told the wise men to report uh, where they found the child so that he said he could go and worship them as well, though that was clearly not his intention. When he saw that the wise men had tricked him, He became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother 
and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, this backwater town that was declared about, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is that the war between the serpent, between the dragon and the serpent slayer, the dragon slayer, is real. We are introduced to this war, this cosmic battle, in the first pages of Genesis. Genesis 3, to be precise, where we have the serpent tempting the woman, the woman and the man eating the fruit which they were forbidden to, falling into sin. And in judgment, God comes to them and he first addresses the serpent in judgment, saying, Genesis 3, verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But it turns a little bit here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel, and we start to get the idea that he's talking about more than just a snake here. He's talking about the great enemy, Satan. And from the early pages of Genesis to the last pages of Revelation, we see this cosmic battle raging. I want to read Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. A few verses later, verse 12, we read, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. War is raging between God and his angels and the great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Let's back up just a few verses to read one of the ancient serpent's attacks in Revelation 12, verses 3 through 5. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
Most would understand this is him taking a third of heaven with him in his fall. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Many interpret this account of the dragon and her woman, uh, and the woman and her child in Revelation as relating to our passage in Matthew with the birth of Christ and this seeking of his life, but God protecting him. You see, it is part of the fulfillment of this prophesied enmity between the serpent and the woman and her offspring that we read about in Genesis 3. And whether you see it as that or, or just future events yet to unfold, all can agree that it shows the enemy seeking to destroy God's plan before it comes to fruition. He knows some of what is to come. It's been revealed to him and to us. And so when he sees that this might be an opportunity, he seeks to seize it to stop short what God is trying to accomplish. An attempt by Satan to hinder, stop the potential of God's design here by killing a vulnerable baby. Now, we already know the fate of the devil and his angels, as does he. In fact, I don't have it on the screen, but in Revelation 20, if we were to turn and read verses 8, we would see, and he will come at the end of time out to deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. It says, They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. It sounds like this epic battle is about to come. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. <coughs> And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And Satan gathers everyone, and it just looks like it's going to be this cinematic last stand, last battle, where these saints are surrounded and have no hope. But the end of it all is almost anticlimactic. God sends fire to consume his forces and throws Satan into the lake of fire. And what we see is this, this isn't even a struggle at all for God. It's a decisive victory. There's no question how this turns out. The result is never in doubt. But Satan is not one just to concede the fight. He knows the end that is coming... It says he fights with great wrath because he knows his time is short. He is willing to attack and fight and unleash scorched earth destruction wherever he can until he's overthrown forevermore into the lake of fire. And we, 
As we look around us, we may only see the human instruments right now, but the dragon's fingerprints are ever-present. Herod sent the soldiers, but the motive, the method, they are clearly Satan's. I don't necessarily mean that, that he was possessed or that he was a puppet, that Satan was just controlling his every move, but that the evil of men's hearts are constantly carrying out Satan's destructive agenda. His agenda to steal, kill, and destroy. There are so many enormous, horrible examples just from the last century alone. Or examples like ethnic cleansing and genocide. We can look back and see the Holocaust, Stalin's Soviet Union, Mao's China, Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, more recently Bosnia, Sudan. Millions of souls detested and devalued, lives destroyed by earthly kings, blinded by the ruler of this age and his great wrath. Not to mention the countless everyday examples that get splashed across the headlines. Sinful man aligned with the tactics and spirit of the deceiver of the whole world. Now, if Paul could declare this truth to the Ephesians, it was also certainly true for Joseph. Joseph's battle wasn't ultimately against flesh and blood. Herod and his soldiers, but against the powers and principalities that have set themselves up in opposition to God. Satan may utilize new weapons and tools and pawns, but his tactics haven't altogether changed in the last few thousand years from Pharaoh's destruction of the male children to prevent Israel from becoming too powerful for Egypt to Herod's attempt to destroy the prophesied king by killing all the male children in the region to today's legalized holocaust of the unborn. Let us not suppose abortion is merely a struggle between choice and life and not the ancient serpent's wrath, or even his attempt to prevent or hinder the next advance in God's plan for redemptive history. If we only draw up battle lines in the political arena, might we be missing entirely the real fight that is going on? second thing I want us to see is that God enlists His church to take up arms to join him and his angels in battle. It seems that Satan keeps convincing people that babies are a threat to bring about his destructive goals. To Pharaoh, they were a threat to the nation because they could become too many and too strong for the Egyptians. To Herod, they were a threat because a prophesied king could loosen his own grip on power Overpopulation and a lack of resources was a threat to China. Angry gods withholding a harvest could be a threat in a pagan culture. 
In the U.S., threats are more likely to be one's financial stability, desire for a career, other plans for the future, sexual freedom, what others might think of me, a threat to comfort or ease by having to bear responsibility for someone else. And according to the current law of our land, any one of these threats are deemed important enough to stop a beating heart within a mother's womb. The slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2 is a horrible tragedy brought on by Herod, a selfish, insecure, egotistical ruler in Jesus' day. Yet how much his selfishness is dwarfed by the destruction perpetrated in our day for the sake of convenience. The baby boys in the region of the little town of Bethlehem likely totaled a few dozen up to a few hundred, while the nearly 50 years since Roe versus Wade in the United States has resulted in the murder of over 60 million unborn. What is really sad and twisted is that today's attack on the unborn is not the result of Satan stirring up the insecure rage of a ruthless ruler, but deceiving parents themselves into murdering their own children. Why do we in the West so often recognize fail to recognize that there are spiritual battles raging all around us. We fail to see the work of the serpent, the angel of light who blinds the eyes of this world. The ultimate battle is not the one waged on Capitol Hill or the Supreme Court, but in the heavenlies, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. He calls us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do we realize who we are really supposed to be fighting against? Are we utilizing the weapons that He has provided for us? Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit that is God's Word, praying at all times. Do we remember this is the armor, the tools that He has given us? And actively seek to make use of what He has provided for the battle He has called us into. 
Let's not be content just to like a post, maybe forward it, and think that we're done. Make no mistake, fearful parents, blinded politicians, misguided advocates, they are not the enemy, but they have fallen under his spell. They are following the ruler of this world. The same one each of us was. The same one that each of us would be apart from the interceding mercy of God through Christ. Let us not allow self-righteousness to fester into hatred for those that are in need of the same gracious rescue that we have so generously received. As a reminder, we have received it. No thanks to any special effort or goodness of our own. Let us remember who our enemy is and let us take up arms against him, those that have been provided by our king. Third thing I want us to see is that the battle rages now, but Christ's victory is sure. And just to be clear, uh, this passage is not talking about abortion, but there are parallels from which we can take one of these secondary applications after we recognize and learn from its main purpose and priority. And, and a main purpose in Genesis, in Matthew, in Revelation, is that God's plan and purpose cannot be thwarted. Not by human sin, not by satanic designs. No matter who seems to be pulling the strings, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, God will not be outsmarted or overrun. He is not surprised by human sin or Satan's plans for evil. And from the very first references, or the very first interference from Satan and sin being introduced in the garden in Genesis, God shows that he is still in control as he steps in and pronounces judgment declaring how this is all going to go and declaring how it is all going to end. And we see the truth of that declaration carried out all the way through Revelation. So it's no surprise that as Matthew gives the details of this event, that he shows a God who is firmly in control. The fulfillment of prophecy, Matthew highlights here, these things were coming hundreds of years after the prophets initially foretold them. And just as we noted that there was an integration of human motive and will serving Satan's purposes, we also see in these fulfilled prophecies a seamless union between human responses to human events and God providentially orchestrating each step and decision 
towards his precise purpose and plan. So a situation like fleeing the threat to Jesus' life from Herod was carried out by Joseph to protect his family. Yet we see in the particular place that they ended up, whether it's in Egypt or in Nazareth, that it was something the prophets anticipated hundreds of years before. In one case, Joseph is specifically directed by God in a dream to head to Egypt. Upon returning to Israel, it appears his decision is more influenced by keeping a distance from Herod's son. In both cases, the end result is the family being positioned exactly where God planned for them to be. And it's not just Joseph's faithful response that God is using to accomplish his purposes, even Herod's evil intentions, which is reminiscent of Old Testament accounts where Evil was clearly intended, but God uses even those evil actions to bring about his good purposes and promises. Of course, the Genesis account of the other Joseph comes to mind, where what his brothers meant for evil, and clearly they meant evil, they were trying to kill him. They settled on selling him into slavery. God, though, meant those same actions, those same intentions that were evil for good. Through slavery and imprisonment, Joseph ended up as second in command to Pharaoh, ultimately in charge during a famine that brought his brothers to Egypt and brought salvation for his whole family because of his position in the land. Something that apart from his brother's evil actions, he never would have ended up there. It's a result that God had given Joseph 15 years before in a dream. And consider Egypt's drowning of the Israelite babies 1,500 years before Christ. Pharaoh's horrible decree is why Moses ended up in a reed basket floating in the river. His evil intention led directly to Moses being found by Pharaoh's daughter and then adopted into Pharaoh's own household, which eventually led to Moses' exile and encounter with God in the wilderness, ultimately leading to the deliverance of the entire nation of Israel, which God, again, told Abraham would happen 500 years earlier. Now, that doesn't mean what I am saying is not... Don't fight against evil, against the evil of abortion, because God will ultimately produce good from it. That's not the message here. In each of these examples, God sovereignly worked through human instruments to accomplish his purposes. We should give. We should pray. We should volunteer. We should write letters, do whatever it is that God gives us the opportunity to do as we don his armor. We should be active in the battle that he has called us to. But I want us to see just as clearly that God has not been losing or backpedaling for the last 50 years since Roe. He is still on his throne. He is still working all things for his ultimate purposes and glory even when we can't see how in the moment. The dragon is fighting furiously because he knows his time is short. 
But friends, the lamb wins. The outcome is certain. The dragon knows his time is short because he knows the lamb wins. The serpent stomping offspring of the woman has already purchased victory. The day is coming when one little word shall fell him, when God will simply say, enough! We know the end of the story. We know that this present darkness will give way to eternal day when his kingdom, when this kingdom of injustice and death is forever overthrown by the king of kings who will triumph with truth and justice and will deal a death blow to death itself. This is no fairy tale. It is the immovable plan and the unbreakable promise of the sovereign, almighty God. We believe this because His word has declared it. And also because His miraculous birth His sinless life, his sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, and triumphant ascension have guaranteed it. We embrace it because the one whose death was sought since birth ultimately prevailed through suffering, through his own death making him the only one qualified to judge righteously. And also capable of providing true comfort and certain hope for those this world has broken, those experiencing inexpressible grief for what has been done to them, unbearable regret, Because of their own sin, he has already overcome. And he will return to complete his victory to the last detail. Many babies were murdered in an attempt to kill this promised Messiah. Many in an attempt to destroy the one with his death on the cross Jesus reversed the equation. One dying for the many. I want to read a brief excerpt from a poem by John Piper called The Innkeeper, where he imagines Jesus returning to Bethlehem near the end of his earthly ministry to seek out the innkeeper who provided the humble space for Mary to give birth. In the story, it's an innkeeper who had small sons of his own who were not spared by Herod's soldiers. And a wife that lost her life trying to keep those soldiers from killing their sons. Of course, there's there's no, no such encounter recorded in Scripture. This is just creative imagination. But the idea of Jesus Being able to offer a comfort that is found nowhere else is a truly biblical idea. After listening to this innkeeper's story, Jesus responds, 
I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death and I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them Jacob back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. He is authorized to make all things right. Because the greatest injustice and act of evil is not something that he allowed to happen to us or babies but what he willingly endured himself on our behalf. The ultimate example of intended evil which God ordained for overwhelming and eternal good was the unjust execution of Christ on the cross where he who knew no sin became sin for you and me. He took the righteous punishment our sins deserved so that we could be brought into his family and share in his inheritance forevermore. There is a real war going on. And we need to be clear who our true enemy is because we have been enlisted and outfitted to fight. And even though victory is ultimately assured, it doesn't mean that the fight now will be easy. The call to value life is a call to speak up for the unborn, to speak to the unsaved. It is a call to take up God's armor and join the real battle to fight against our true enemy, to crucify our own selfishness, our sinful anger and self-righteousness for the sake of the voice, voiceless unborn, the downtrodden, and all those that are blinded by the ruler of this world. May we imitate our Savior as we proclaim his gospel. May we stand up for life by laying down our own. The band would come Let's pray as we close. Father, I pray that you would help us to see not just with our earthly eyes, to have a vision 
that only you can reveal to us. Help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. Desire what you desire. Lord, I pray that you help us where we're rusty, where we know we're weak, where we know our abilities fail. Help us to strap on the armor that you have provided for us. Help us to strengthen weak knees, Lord, that we might stand against the schemes of the enemy, that we might see victories come as you fight the battle that you have already revealed you have won. 